sing, it's all about you, Jesus, is a, a countercultural assertion. Many of you would be millennials by generational reckoning, and you're used to all the put-downs from folks like my age. Oh, millennials are all about themselves. Millennials are this, millennials are that. But what you're expressing is a countercultural assertion of the priority of Jesus Christ. It's not about me, it's about him. That's what we're singing, because that is Christianity. Amen? Amen. That's what we've been called to. It's like when Christ becomes the center of the universe, everything else falls into place. And he's able to work in our lives and bring healing and change because we're serving him, following him only. When Jesus came and he preached his gospel, it was a reorientation of the whole person to which he called people. That's why the gospel's revolutionary. That's why it can revolutionize your life. If you don't know Christ, if you come to know him today, it will be the beginning of a whole new life for you. And that's as true for those of you who are watching online as anyone else. Christ is there with you at this very moment. So today, I want us to see some important teachings that Jesus laid down for us to get right to the heart of things. He talked about, sang about the heart of worship. Well, what's the heart of what you might call true religion? That's what we're going to see. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Of course, we're in the book of Matthew. We have been for weeks. Some of you are just coming back to school, and you don't know that, but we've been studying through Matthew. We're going to continue until we reach Advent, just four weeks prior to Christmas. And right now, if you look on the left side of your screen, you see the Galilean ministry. Jesus is in Galilee, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, driving out demons. He'll soon be in Judea, but right now, there he is in Galilee. And our church has together been reading through Matthew, and this last week, we read through Matthew 14 and 15. And in that section, we see Jesus feeding the 5,000 miraculously, walking on water, again, miraculously. And most of our life groups are focusing right there, reflecting on those passages. But this morning, I want to deal with true religion as Jesus sets it out in these verses. And we're going to focus in on the first 20 verses of Matthew chapter 15. So, let's look at those verses together. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you 
when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended by what they heard when they heard this saying? He answered, Every tree that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So Jesus is in Galilee, but some scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem come to see him. Evidently, this is a group that's been sent to check Jesus out. They want to scrutinize what he's teaching, what he's doing, They've heard a lot about this young rabbi in Galilee, and evidently they didn't hear what they wanted to hear. So they send representatives. And what these scribes and Pharisees saw was not pleasing at all. They saw the disciples eating without first washing their hands. Now, this has nothing to do with the coronavirus, (laughs) nor does it have anything to do with hygiene of any kind. This has to do with ceremonial defilement. And this is in keeping with the tradition of the elders. So to make sense of what's happening here, you have to back up and know something about how the Jews understood their traditions. Now see, for Judaism, it all goes back to the Torah, which means law or instruction. And that Torah was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And he delivers that to the people, and Torah is written down. We have it in the first five books of the Old Testament. But many Jews believed, and many rabbis taught, that Moses gave not just written Torah, but oral Torah as well, oral instruction. And this was passed down through the generations for the people. It was oral tradition. Now, that didn't really happen. As a historical fact, what happened was, during the exile and after the exile, scribes like Ezra taught the people, and their teachings were collected over time, and they become part of this oral tradition. And it gets passed down generation after generation, and the body of oral tradition grows and grows until it can become quite burdensome. But this tradition was essentially about interpreting the Bible and applying the Bible to ordinary life. And you see it, for example, in the laws regarding Sabbath. If you read your Old Testament, you'll see God did command that the Jews keep the Sabbath. You weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. Instead, it was a day of rest and a day of worship. But what counts as work? Somebody has to decide what's work. 
And so the rabbis would confer and they would reflect and they would render a judgment. That would become part of the tradition. And so they would say, well, this is work, but this isn't work. So you can't do this on the Sabbath, but you can do that on the Sabbath. So they did that on a multitude of different issues, including on the issues of purity. That's where the washing of hands come in. This was a ritual cleansing of the hands. Because back in the Old Testament, God had these laws regarding what was clean and what was unclean. That was all meant to teach the people important spiritual lessons. When Christ comes, that's all set aside. But even in the Old Testament, that was never central. What was central was, in, was what was in the heart. But this seems so important because the same God that said your heart mattered also said you should be clean and not unclean. This is a ceremonial cleanness it's talking about. And so the tradition started building. There are certain foods you could eat, other foods that you couldn't eat. And then the rabbi said, well, you know, you may touch something and your hands become unclean. And if your hands then touch the food, it becomes unclean. Then you eat that food, your whole being becomes unclean. We can't have that. So from now on, everyone needs to ritually wash their hands. As I said, it's not like soap and water. Water was poured over their hands with their fingertips pointed up so it would run down off their wrists. And then they would point their fingertips down and more water would be poured over. It's a long explanation for why they did it that way, but that's the way they did it. <laughs> now, this ritual cleansing of the hands was regarded as so important, but here's what's interesting. It is nowhere found in the Bible. Nowhere. The priests sometimes had to go through certain ritual washings before they were ready to serve in the temple, but ordinary people didn't have to do this before eating. But to the scribes and Pharisees, this was part of the tradition of the elders. This was how you should apply the biblical teachings to ordinary life. And so they insisted on it. Now, out of this, Jesus teaches on two basic subjects. The first, he talks about human traditions and how it relates to the Word of God. And essentially what he says is, the Word of God stands over tradition. The Word of God judges tradition. We are bound by the authority of the Word of God and the commandments that God has given us. We are not bound by human constructions about how we're to live and what we are to do. The example he gives of how traditions can actually be used to subvert the Word of God is this talk about parents and honoring your father and mother. It's a little obscure to us, but everyone in the first century would have known exactly what the Lord was talking about. You see, the Bible says you're to honor your father and mother, and part of that meant taking care of them in their old age. There was no Social Security. There was no Medicare. You didn't have a safety net. If the children didn't care for the parents, the parents in their old age would suffer for it. So everyone understood a child had to care for their parents. But the Pharisees and scribes, they come along and they say, well, you know, if you dedicate your property to God, and some people would do that. They'd say, when I die, all of my property is going to the temple for the priests to distribute as needed. It's all God's. 
If you take an oath to dedicate your property to God, then if your parents are in need, you can't use that property to support them. You've made an oath to God. And it's more important that you keep your oath to God because God is God than it is that you take care of your parents. So what Jesus says here is, look, you've got this tradition that says this oath is more important than obeying the command of God. And so your tradition actually subverts the command of God. What you're teaching people to do actually violates the will of God. You think it's holy, and it's the opposite of holy. And then Jesus talks about this issue of purity and the heart. Here he's talking about the externals versus what's inside. And he says, you know, the external things, whether it be washings or the food you eat or whatever, they are not the essential thing. The essential thing is what's in your heart. You're worried about purity? Let me tell you, purity of the heart is what matters. Defilement? You're not going to be defiled because of something you eat. You're going to be defiled because your heart is impure. It's not something that goes into your mouth. It's the words that come out of your mouth that reveal what's inside you. Sin. That's what makes you impure and unclean. So the Lord puts the word of God above tradition, and he puts inner commitment to God and inner purity over any kind of ritual purity. So here's my question. Given what Jesus teaches in these verses, how does all that reply, apply to us? How do we apply it? Well, I want to focus on two different groups right now. The first, the intensely religious. That may not be the best term. I couldn't come up with a better phrase. By intensely religious, I mean the person who is really serious about pleasing God. They're not casual. You know, a lot of people, they're so casual about it. Yeah, I believe in God, but it doesn't make any difference in their lives. I'm talking about people that really do want to do the will of God. And in this category, you would include many Christians. There'd be many Christians here, but not just Christians, people who are religiously serious. That other group is the spiritual but not religious group. Have you ever heard that phrase before, spiritual but not religious? It's talked about a lot these days as, as people uh, study American culture and try to understand where people are religiously. Probably 20% of American adults would fall into this category of spiritual but not religious. Those people are over-organized religion. They're not interested in organized religion. They're not in church today, probably, unless they were invited by somebody and they're thinking, man, I really don't like this. They're not, they're not into organized religion. For them, spirituality is something that you have to own yourself. You create it yourself. It's what's meaningful to you. You have your truth. I have my truth. It's all about being the free individual who can decide what you believe. Nobody can impose that on you. And besides, you look at all the different religions, that's fine for people who like that, but they all teach basically the same thing. And when it comes to right and wrong, what's really right or wrong? Well, God is mostly concerned about my happiness. 
that I be fulfilled, that I live in peace, that I be a nice person, and, and that I flourish as a person, and maybe I flourish in my relationships with people who are close to me. But God, well, you know, what do we know really about God? I have my God, a higher power. I worship God as I understand God. And then one final piece, almost always among the spiritual but not religious, is this idea that in our heart of hearts, we really are good people. If we just follow what's in our heart, it'll all turn out okay. Life will be good. Because most of our problems are caused by what other people do to us. We listen to other people, all their negative messages, all their put-downs. What I have to do is throw off all of that junk, including the religious junk, so that I can simply live out what's in me. That's the spiritual but not religious. So what does Jesus have to do or have to say in this passage that would apply to the intensely religious on one side and to the spiritual but not religious on the other? Let's take the first one, the intensely religious. These are the folks, like many in this room, many watching online right now, who are very serious about serving God. You want to do God's will. Here's what Jesus teaches us in Matthew 15. That it is all too possible to let our interpretation of Scripture and our application of Scripture to form a tradition that leads us away from the will of God. That we interpret and misinterpret Scripture. We apply it, but we misapply it. And by doing so, we construct an idea of what's important to God when that's not important to God at all, and it actually leads us to subvert the will of God. Sometimes, sometimes it can be in a ridiculous thing. I mean, it can just be so foolish. A few years ago, there was a man, not in this church, but a different church, that was really offended by me. I mean, he was as scandalized by me as the scribes and Pharisees were of Jesus. I'm sure I gave him better cause than Jesus did. But he was so upset that he got on the telephone and he started calling people in the church and trying to stir up discontent in the church. The problem was, is I had no reverence for God, no respect for the Word of God. Now, where did that come from? Well, here's what I did. One day I thought, you know, I'm always standing behind this big block of wood. It was a pulpit. And I thought, it might be better if I put the pulpit aside so there's nothing that comes between me and everybody else. <laughs> I can communicate more naturally and more easily that way. So I removed the pulpit, which I kind of thought was for my benefit, no one else's gives you a place to put your stuff, right? So I removed the pulpit, had a Bible in my left hand, and started preaching from the Bible that way. Well, that pulpit represented the Word of God preached in the church. That pulpit represented respect for the Bible and reverence for God. And what a crime I committed. 
to remove that pulpit from the church. As I said, he got on the phone trying to stir up a lot of people. It didn't work, so he ended up leaving the church. So think about this. He has this idea. It doesn't come from the Bible. What does the Bible say about pulpits? They're good. They're not good. It's a preference thing. I have nothing against pulpits. I have stood behind more blocks of wood than anybody in this room. <laughs> Preaching, I mean. But he had these ideas about it, this tradition about it. It was all mixed up with his ideas about respect for God and reverence for the scriptures and all the rest. And that moved him and inspired him to do what? To do evil. To seek to cause damage. To me, yes, but more importantly, to the church of Jesus Christ. And then he leaves the church, this community that he says he cares about because he just can't abide it. Do you see how a tradition, even something as silly as that, can become a big issue? But it happens. It happens all the time. It's not always such a small and insignificant thing. I had a little lady come talk to me after a Bible study one Wednesday night. I say little because she couldn't have been an inch over five feet tall. She really was little. She was 81 years old, I know, because she told me. And she said, I want to ask you a question. Well, what? She said, you know, I, I was taught when I was a little girl that the reason black people have dark skin is because of the curse of Ham. Is that true? Now, most of you have not heard anything about this. This is completely new to you because you're not old enough. <laughs> I read about it, but I'd actually never met someone who was taught this. But let me tell you what this teaching is. You go back to the Old Testament, and after the flood, Moses, uh, excuse me, Noah has three sons, one of whom was Ham, and Ham showed disrespect for his father. We don't know exactly what he did, but Noah was ticked off, and so Noah pronounced a curse. He didn't actually pronounce it on Ham. He pronounced it on Canaan, Ham's, Ham's son. But somehow, somehow that got forgotten. Why worry about what the Bible actually says when we're constructing our traditions? So people started talking about the curse on Ham. About the time that slavery starts being promoted, some Christians said, well, you know, Ham, that represents all these people in Africa. They're, they're dark-skinned because it's part of that curse, and slavery is part of that curse as well. If you go back to the text with that idea in mind, you can even today kind of see where they're putting that together. There's nothing in the text that even remotely suggests such a thing, but that's where they were coming from. So after slavery ends and you have Jim Crow laws, that was still being used. You see, African Americans, they should be in a subordinate place. It's the outworking of the curse of Ham. Now, you see, that's an interpretation of Scripture. It has a sinister application. It's used to oppress people. And it actually subverts the teaching of the Bible 
Because after all, the Bible talks about all of us being descended from Adam and Eve. We're all one in that sense, right? Even beyond Christ making us one, we're all created by the same God in God's image. But here, oh, here's an explanation why we can pick out this group of people and treat them as subhuman. They've been cursed. I said to this lady, yeah, I said, oh, no, no, that's not true. And I explained to her what was going on in the Genesis passage. And she said, you know, it never did sound right to me. And she turned and walked, walked away. But here is a lady who grew up in Alabama during Jim Crow, and she was taught that, a tradition that subverts obedience to the Word of God. What Jesus reminds us of in this passage is it is the Word of God that we follow, not just tradition. And when we interpret Scripture, we need our hearts to be right. Otherwise, we may wrench that scripture in a, in a way that perverts it, misapplies it, and does terrible damage. We sin in the name of God. Then there's this spiritual but not religious group. And at first, at first, they're going to say, hey, I'm all with Jesus. I'm not into that tradition stuff. You know, I think everybody has to work these spiritual issues out themselves. I agree with Jesus. And you know what? It really is the heart. It doesn't matter how you live on the outside. It's what's in your heart. That's what they think. But actually, if you pay attention, Jesus says no to the authority of human tradition because he's saying yes to the authority of God's word. Amen. To live for God is to live beneath the word of God under the authority of the Word of God. We don't just make it up. It's been given to us, this faith that we hold to. And so Jesus calls us to submit ourselves to the commandments of our God as found in Scripture. And then secondly, Jesus does say it's a matter of the heart, but notice he says, defilement is found in the heart. It emerges in the heart. If you go to the heart of hearts of each one of us, you're not going to find this godlike self. What you're going to find is a person who's bent away from God, who has this continual tendency to do not what's right, but what's wrong. That's all of us. We are sinners. So Jesus reminds us that sin emerges in the heart. Now, the good news is he tells Nicodemus that you can be reborn spiritually. But he says that unless you've been born spiritually or reborn spiritually, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the way to salvation is not by turning in and finding that wonderful you. The way of salvation is looking up and turning to Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, who will give you a new heart, a new spirit within. And so when you look at this teaching of Jesus, he has a lot to say to serious religious people, but also to those who say, I'm not religious, I'm just spiritual. He has a lot to say to both. And it all comes back to the same thing. We need God to change our hearts 
and we need to submit ourselves to the word of God and let God guide us in the way that he's chosen for us. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your power that changes us. We thank you, Lord, for the kindness you've poured out on us and the patience you have. Though so often, Lord, we, we twist your truth into lies. God, forgive us when we do it. Guide us in truth. And Lord, may everyone in this place, if they've not yet received that new life, eternal life that comes from you, may they receive it now. May they turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.